Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current series, Connect, which dives into different relationships. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Well, good morning again. We're in this series called Summer in the Gospels, and today we're going to look at another gospel teaching from Jesus. But I want to start with talking about uh, someone I admire. His name is Horst Schultze. And uh, if you know him, you know that he is the founder of the luxury hotel chain, the Ritz-Carlton, and also the founder of the Capello Hotel Group. And recently I listened to an interview uh, by him uh, about uh, his new book, and his new book is uh, called Excellence Wins. And as he uh, shared in that interview, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I've come to admire about, and he shared again in the interview, is about his faith in God and how that transforms him and, and changes him. But he also talked about, as a follower of Jesus, how his faith in Christ has led him to always seek to do the best he can do in his life because he wants to give God his best. So, a little bit of his biography. When he was 11 years old, he decided that when he grew up, he wanted to work in a hotel. Now, uh, he grew up in Germany, and he writes that every self-respecting family wanted their sons to do something greater than what he wanted to do. To talk about hotel work was like saying you wanted to be a street sweeper or a garbage collector. He writes his family was embarrassed by his dream, and they tried to dissuade him, and for three years they were in a standoff about his future. And he goes on to explain, he said, you know, at that time in Germany, when you reached the age of 14, you had to decide, would you go on to higher academic education, or would you move into a trade? And so, obviously, he opted for a trade, and so reluctantly his parents enrolled him in a boarding school to teach him hotel work. He said after he completed his education, the school found an apprenticeship for him at a luxury hotel and spa. He writes, I still remember the lecture my mother gave me on the train. Now, son, she sternly said, this hotel is for important ladies and gentlemen. We could never stay there. You must behave yourself accordingly. Take your shower, wash your socks, do not do anything out of line. Horst goes on and he writes, the maitre d' of that hotel made a huge impression on me as my boss. Though he was in his early 70s, he still had a stately bearing as he would go from table to table in the dining room. And as I watched, it almost seemed as if the guests were proud to have him stop by their table. They looked up to engage him in conversation. They con- this conveyed to me that while we young workers naturally viewed him as the most important person in the room, the guests apparently did so also. What a reversal, I thought. It's almost upside, upside down. This man, he said, was a great teacher for us young people. Before mealtimes, he would talk through the day's menu and explain any new items and coach us how to describe those items to the guest. The mystique 
of the hospitality industry seemed to dance in this maitre d's eyes. In slow times, he would tell us about the great hotels he had worked in during his long career. He didn't only inspire us, but he also held us to very high standards. And he goes on and he writes about some of the times when he did not meet those standards and what happened. He said, near the end of his three-year apprenticeship, he said, all of us were given an assignment to write an essay about how we felt about our work and, and what we had learned. He said, I decided to write about that maitre d'. I told about what an exceptional human being he was. I described his impeccable dress, his elegant mannerisms, his genuine interest in each and every guest. And it came to me that he was defining himself as a true gentleman. And he goes, somewhere near the end of writing that essay, I coined a phrase, a phrase that became my motto for life. He said, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. He says, you know, we were not just servants in the shadows of the hospitality industry. We could rise to a higher identity. And as I said, that became his life's motto, ladies, ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. Now, eventually, Horst moved to the United States, and while most of his friends headed off to see the sights of New York when they landed in that city, his number one destination on his list was to go to the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. He said, looking at the Waldorf Astoria, Astoria he, he said, as he thought to himself standing there, would I ever get to be the manager of a hotel this splendid? At that time, there was no way to tell, but I knew that if the chance ever came my way, I would seek to make it a place where a staff of ladies and gentlemen would serve ladies and gentlemen with pride. And he concludes, my dream would be turned into reality for the benefit of not only the guests, but also everyone who would serve them, from the newest maid to the highest supervisor. Together, we would rise to excellence. If you read his book, you will see how he put that motto into practice. As I said, I've listened to several interviews of Horst, and he always shares uh, it, that his story and in a very clear way that he believes that followers of Jesus should also aspire to excellence, to always give their best, not for their own reputation, but for the glory of God, because we're supposed to pursue that excellence, not out of perfection, but because of the one God whom we serve. So today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, a passage of Scripture where Jesus makes it clear that going the way of the world or following the status quo of culture is not an option for followers of Jesus. He's going to raise the bar for us as believers, making it clear that we should always seek to give God our very best and, and not follow the ways of our culture. Now, normally, I don't read lengthy passages of Scripture, but today I am. And I encourage you to follow along on the screen, or if you have your Bibles handy, you can turn to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, and you, uh, excuse me, chapter 5, and you can follow along beginning in, in verse 20. Uh, but otherwise, it's going to be on the screen. And, and I just want you to pay attention to how Jesus is, 
is raising the bar for followers of Jesus. Now, he's going to start off, it's sort of with his thesis. I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you're on the way to the court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. Then he goes on. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by earth, because earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I want. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands you that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it for two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for you for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, How are you different from anyone else? 
Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, if you're thinking, what in the heck is Jesus doing? Uh, That's good. Because Jesus is turning things upside down. And he's not doing it to be difficult, but rather he's doing it to establish the right perspective for followers of Christ. Pastor and scholar Dr. Stu Weber gives some important insight into what Jesus is doing here. He writes that these six points that begin with the phrase from Jesus like, you have heard it said, and then that conclude, but I say, are just examples of how to apply a greater principle. Dr. Weber goes on, And he says about those specific six points that they were not intended to be an exhaustive list of every possible instance of application, but a pattern which we're supposed to learn and and that we're supposed to generalize in our attitudes and in our words and our actions in our lives. Jesus presented these six examples supporting his thesis when he talked about having the righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees. He could easily have provided more examples, but his purpose was not to teach every possible example, but rather a way of thinking. This approach, he says, will prepare believers for every possible situation that we'll ever face. And Dr. Stu concludes by saying this, the insights to be gained here about murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, revenge, and love are valuable. But we miss the entire message if we do not take the single underlying principle and learn how to apply it to the infinite number of decisions that we face throughout our lives. And the underlying principle, he says, is this. Seek and apply the heart intention of God's instructions and not merely the letter of it. He says, you know, this is impossible to do on a human level, but as we seek him with all our hearts, he will reveal it to us. So, what is God's intention, his heart intention for us? When we know what that is and when we apply it to the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we speak, that Jesus shows us with this framework, then we'll know how to respond. So let's talk first about God's intention. God wants us to seek him with all that we are so that we can know him and so that we can love him forever. And Jesus makes this very clear. In several instances, he shows us how he intends for us to seek God. And he tells us that he wants us to know God and to love God. In a prayer, Jesus described what he and God the Father want for us, his followers. He prays this prayer. He says, this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. So knowing God happens by pursuing God. And we get to know God in pursuit of him in specific ways. When we read scripture, when we begin to rely on him and trust him, and as we read scripture and follow him, then we get to know him more. And we get to trust him more. Reading the Bible is a spiritual discipline. And and like all disciplines, the more we practice that discipline, and, and I will use that word, the more we practice it, the more it becomes natural. 
and, and the more meaningful it comes to us. And, and the more we learn how to trust God at his word. So it's important for us to let God speak to us, for us to get to know him as we read God's word and understand his heart for us. And we see things like what we just read as Jesus says, this is the way you normally do it, but I say, I'm going to raise the bar. And this is how you should do it. You know, ask any of our worship team members, particularly the ones who play instruments, the, the more they play, the more they practice the more natural it becomes, and the more natural it becomes, the more they know about their instrument, and the more meaningful it comes for them, becomes to them for playing it. So God wants us to know him more and to commit to pursuing him. And God also wants us to love him like he loves us. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. You know, this commandment did not originate with Jesus. Uh, God gave this command specifically to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He gave this command to the people of Israel through their leader, Moses, and you can read it in the book of Deuteronomy. It's part of what... Uh, our Jewish friends call the Shema, and the Shema starts this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. In other words, we're supposed to know it, we're supposed to believe it, and we're supposed to allow it to raise our standard of living because we're living for him. So this is the history of God's love for his people, that, that he pursues us and he loves us. And yes, he wants to be loved by us. And like in any loving relationship, we demonstrate our love to God by our faithfulness to him in that relationship. God makes it clear in the, in the Shema that he wants us to obey his commands. God is faithful to us, and he wants faithfulness from us. Love must have mutual faithfulness to exist. And yes, it must have mutual faithfulness to survive. But God isn't self-centered. He isn't only concerned about our relationship with him. He also wants us to know and to love people. In that same passage where Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He doesn't end when he says, this is the greatest commandment. He continues and he says, there's a second which is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Loving others as ourselves goes back to the motto, to me, for what Horst Schultze said, that we are supposed to be ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we look at people the way God looks at them? And how does God look at people and look at us? As beloved sons and daughters that he created. Even if those sons and daughters aren't 
believing in him yet, he still looks at all people that way. So we have to ask ourselves, do we see others that way as beloved children of God? Do we love them the way God loves them with an unconditional love, even a sacrificial love? And I'll go back to this passage, verse 40. I love that verse because in it, Jesus was speaking to a crowd in the first century. These folks did not have the New Testament that we had. They had the Old Testament and the prophets. They had the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament and the prophets. And Jesus said, he said that if you love God with all your heart, if you love people like you love yourself, you're actually going to practice the law. You're going to keep it because it's going to raise your standard of being a follower of God. And it's going to allow you to follow all the teaching of the prophets. You see, it's an all-encompassing love that he calls us to. It's a, it's a way of life. It's not the way of our world, but it's the way of God that he calls us to. So loving God with all that we are and loving others like ourselves elevates our response. So let, let's talk about our response to God. If we're going to know God and love God, then we're going to do the thing that helps us do that. We're going to allow him to raise our bar of following him. We will seek to give God our best, and that's why God wants us to do some things in response. First, he wants us to live by his word. When Jesus was fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, the devil came and tempted him, to disobey God and to sin. He said, turn these stones into bread because you've got to be hungry. Well, Jesus replied to him by quoting Scripture, saying that it is written, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was demonstrating that he lives by the word of God and that he knew the word of God and that's what God calls each of us to do, to know the word of God and live by it. Why? Because it shows us God's priorities, and in effect, it does then raise our bar of living in a way that gives God glory and honor and praise as we give him our very best. I suspect most of us know the Ten Commandments. Don't worship other gods. Don't worship idols. Don't misuse gods. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. You know, the, the Ten Commandments aren't some high and lofty, unobtainable goal for a lifetime of trying. That's not what they are. They're not the goal. They're the first step. They, they're the starting point. They're the bare minimum. God is saying that this is basic. This is where you start. But I don't want you to stop there. I have higher ways for you. So how do we find those higher ways? We find those higher ways by immersing ourselves in God's word and allow it to become the way that we live. And the only way that's going to happen is if we make time intentionally to spend time in God's Word, turning off the distractions and spending time reading God's Word, getting to know His heart for us and for the world, 
and applying what we learn. Annie F. Downs uh, is a Christian leader, and she's challenged her followers to read the Gospels over and over through different translations. And she says this, you don't have to be in the Gospels every day to be changed, but every day you're in the Gospels will change you. That's why we're challenging everybody to join us in a reading plan this summer to read a chapter of the Gospels a day. And if you want to find out more about it, you can go to our website and you can join this group on the Bible app and, and read with us. If you, if you don't want to join the group, that's fine, but read a chapter a day of the Gospels. You see, when we live by God's word, it will change us. It will raise our standard of living for God. He also wants us to respond in another way, to glorify him with our lives. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said this, when you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples, and this brings great glory to my Father. We produce fruit, spiritual fruit, when we learn God's word and we follow it in our lives. When we're faithful to God and his word, we are fruitful. And when we're fruitful, Jesus says, that gives glory to God. One of the ways that Christians have sought to teach and help people become followers of Jesus is by writing catechisms. A catechism is simply a summary of principles, of beliefs, of the Christian faith in the form of questions and answers. And one of the most universally accepted catechisms is the Westminster Catechism. And the very first question and answer helps us form our response to God's intention for our lives. And the question is this, what is the main and highest purpose of humankind? And in the Westminster Catechism, the answer is, humankind's main and highest purpose is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. So we have to ask ourselves, in what way am I living a life that's glorifying to God? Am I always treating others in a way that's glorifying God? Do the words I speak glorify God? Do the things I say glorify God? Do the things I put out there in public on social media or some other place, do those glorify God? Stop and ask yourself, do I realize that God wants me to be his servant in this world, serving others? You see, God wants to raise our bar for following him. So I want you to consider what that means for your life today. I want you to consider what that means for your life as an individual, but I also want you to consider what that means for your life as part of the body of Christ, part of this church. So if we're to embrace Jesus' way of thinking, we're going to love God and we're going to love people no matter what. That means we'll prioritize spending time with God every day. If we can make time to watch TV or scroll through social media or to read a book, we can certainly make time to pursue God. But it's also going to mean that we pursue interacting with others in God-honoring ways. How do we treat our family members? How do we treat our friends? How do we treat our enemies? Are they God-honoring ways? 
Our words should be kind, loving and respectful, not angry, biting and impatient. We should seek to show our most excellent manners for God and to others because it glorifies our Father in heaven. So that's our individual lives. But how do we apply this as part of the body of Christ? Well, look, as a church, we want to glorify God by loving him and giving him our best, by seeking excellence, not because we're perfectionists, but because God deserves our very best. We want everyone who calls Valley Brook their church to to treat everyone who steps onto this campus like, according to Horst Schultze, ladies and gentlemen. And we want to care for them and serve them with excellence. And why do we do that? Because we want to honor God. And we want to make sure that the way we treat people encourages them to return so that they can come to know God and so that they can grow in their faith with God. You see, we're called to represent Jesus 24-7. The Apostle Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. That means we're his representatives. And so we need to recognize that we're on, in the public constantly, 24-7, whether it's uh, at work or in the neighborhood or at home, wherever we are. We need to honor him and glorify him. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward because in a moment they're going to lead us in our closing song. But I want you to think about how this applies to your life. It's possible you need to uh, repent and say, God, I've not been giving you my best. I've dishonored you in that way. Or God, I have uh, not treated others. I've not loved them like I love myself. And it's possible you need to say to God, God, I need you to help me recognize that I'm not giving you my best in the words that I speak and the things that I do with every area of my life because that's what he calls us to. You know, at at the end of our lives, because we're followers of Jesus, because we've accepted him as our Lord and Savior, we know that we'll go to heaven. But Scripture tells us there'll be a judgment day and God will judge us and say, well, what'd you do with your time on earth? We need to be able to say, God, I I tried to give you my best in every way. And when I failed, I asked for forgiveness. Now, I want to lead us in a prayer, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to have some silence to confess any sin. But I also recognize if you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, that needs to happen first. So I'm going to invite you to put your trust in Jesus and follow him, and then I'll move into a prayer for all of us. So if you would, bow your heads. God, as we gather here today, for that person who's never put their trust in you, we want to invite them to pray these words silently back to you. Here's the first phrase. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died to pay for my sins and that he rose again from the dead. Today, I want to trust him as my Savior and follow him as my Lord. So guide me, Lord. We'll say amen to this. Now I'm going to lead us in a prayer. So God, we want to give you our best, not for some crazy perfectionist tendency, but because you deserve our best. We want to give you excellence. 
We want to honor you because you've shown us how great you are and we want to honor you by giving you the best that we have to offer. So Lord, forgive us when we have failed. We repent. We turn away from that behavior. Lord, we confess our sins when we have not honored others or honored you. We ask that you would work in us to do what you want to do so that we could be ambassadors for Christ, representing him always in a way that helps us grow closer to you and to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.